with it being the last Sunday in August, we're coming to the end of summer, right, which we're probably all ready for after last week and the, the heat that <laughs> it was present for most of that. Um, but we're also quickly approaching the end of our uh, summer sermon series where I've been preaching overviews on different books of the Bible. Um, uh, next week, I'll be out of town at family camp, but Pastor Tim is going to conclude the series, uh, preaching on the book of Amos. And one of the things that I, I wanted to do this summer uh, was preach on books in the Bible that, that differed from one another, differed in scope, length, literary style. Um, I, I think there is great value in getting into the habit of seeing the Bible not just as, uh, uh, as a unified whole, it is that without question, but also seeing it as, as 66 unique books, which all have individual purposes and themes. And, and for a great example of that, or a contrast, we don't have to look any further than last week's book and this week's book. Last week, I preached from the book of Jeremiah. So Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet, uh, prophetic book. It, it's focused on the reality of judgment coming upon God's people because of their rejection of him. And it's long, right? It's the second longest book in the Bible by word. This week I'm preaching on Jude. <laughs> Jude is a New Testament letter, and it is focused on the reality of ungodly teaching uh, creeping into the church and, and is a call to stand firm in response to it. And it's also one of the shortest books of the Bible. So we have quite a contrast as far as that goes from last week to this week. And due to its shorter length, we'll actually be able to read the entire book this morning in the sermon, something we couldn't have done with Jeremiah last week uh, without me making you upset for how late lunch would be, right? So... So, so hopefully that, that kind of allows us to change gears from last week, but let's, let's dive right into the book of Jude by, by reading the introductory remarks that, that Jude gives us. So Jude is the second to last book in the Bible. It's on page 1027 in the Pew Bibles, if you'd like to follow there. And I will read the first two verses, the opening of the letter. It says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So as far as the writer of this letter, he identifies himself as Jude, the brother of James. Now the majority of scholars would agree that Jude is probably referring to the James who wrote the epistle of James. And that would mean that along with James, that Jude would be the half-brother of Jesus. Many believe that that James, the James that wrote James, is that James that is the, the half-brother of Jesus. So that would make Jude the half-brother of Jesus as well. And that, that's not necessarily a crucial detail in reading this letter, but but it's at least interesting to think about as we spend time in it this morning. When it comes to the recipients of the letter, we aren't really told anything other than that they are Christians. So there's debate about whether Jude knows them personally 
or he's writing a general letter to the churches. As I read Jude's words, I would lean toward him having a specific church in mind, but what he writes would have been easily applicable to all churches across not just space, but time. And, and so that means that his words have plenty to say to us today as well. And that's all of the Bible, but we'll especially see that this morning in Jude's letter. So if, if, you, if you look at your sermon notes, you'll see that, that the main purpose of Jude's letter is to warn about ungodly teaching present within the church. And I know that many translations, including the ESV, have a heading that uses the phrase false teaching or false teachers. But because Jude never uses the word false and repeatedly uses the word ungodly, I chose to use the language of Jude for the outline this morning. You're going to see that word ungodly coming up again and again. So, so let's dive into what he says in his letter. Follow along with me as we pick it up in verse 3. He says, Behold, although, or sorry, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So what we see is that, that Jude had desired to write a letter focused more upon the general truths or, or the great depth of their common salvation. But the situation that he observed caused him to change course. And what he observed is given to us in verse 4. There were certain people who had crept into the church ungodly people who denied the lordship of Jesus. And, and what we'll go on to see is that the problem wasn't just that the people were present, but that their teachings or their ways were making inroads into the church body. So this church's doors, just like all churches, would have been rightly open to those who, who didn't yet know who Jesus was but we're curious to find out, right? Those who hadn't, put, who hadn't yet put their faith in Jesus should not be kept out. That's not what Jude is arguing for here. Instead, he is writing about ungodly people who were denying the lordship of Jesus by perverting the grace of God into sensuality. So in other words, they were teaching that the grace of God shown to his people was a license to sin. Now, that's addressed other places in Scripture as well. Paul talks in Romans chapter 6, and he, he asks the question, are, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then the response he gives there is, by no means. By no means. That is not the proper response. What these people, what the ungodly would have said was, yeah, sure thing. Grace covers it, so, so we, can, we can move forward however we would like to live. And, and what is concerning about Jude's words in uh, verses 3 and 4 is that it seems like the church was mostly unaware of what was happening. I, they, they didn't take notice that this ungodly teaching was taking root within them. 
If they had noticed, if they had responded appropriately, then Jude would have had no reason to write to them about it. But as it was, that teaching was present and and Jude needed to identify it for the church. And man, as as I'm thinking about that, as I was studying that, I, I find myself, I found myself a bit worried when I consider the reality of the situation in that church. I can't help but think, if that, if that can happen now, happen then, then it can happen now, right? If the church leaders then weren't aware of what was happening, then, then I shouldn't be so prideful as to think that, oh, that can't happen in this context, right? Like, well, that, that would never happen. And it, you know, in that time, the, the ungodly teaching would have been, it would have been connected with, with flesh and blood people who were physically part of the church, right? Flesh and blood people who, who walked through the doors of the church. Because of the way that, that information and systems of thought travel today, ungodly teaching doesn't have to physically walk through our doors to make its way into our church body. It can find its way in by so many other means. We, we think it could be books. It could be could be podcasts, political speeches, music, movies. Uh, I mean, many other ways. I mean, we could come up with a whole list. You know, there, there's, a, there's a temptation today, just like there was then, to pervert the grace of God into sensuality and, and other sinful practices and behaviors. And so we, we have to have our eyes and our ears open to catch those ungodly teachings when they are presented to us so that they don't take root within us. And the reason those things need to be identified and the reason we need to stand firm so they're not taking root is because God has promised to judge ungodly teaching and those who proclaim it and live according, according to it. So look with me at verse 5, what Jude goes on to say. Now I want to remind you although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but, let their, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So Jude references three past situations in which God's um, judgment upon ungodliness was seen. So there's the Egyptians who worshiped false gods and enslaved God's people. They faced judgment as part of the exodus. Uh, the angels who rebelled against God, Jude mentions them. Now, now some believe that, that this is referring to the mysterious scene in Genesis chapter 6 where sons of God took the daughters of man as wives and bore children with them. And whatever it was that specifically took place there, and, and it is one of the great questions of Scripture. You can get a lot of different interpretations about what exactly was taking place. But whatever that was, it, it, it seems that there was a, a sexual component to it. It seems that in Genesis 6. It seems like Jude uh, understands it that way here as well. 
which then leads right into um, to the, the third statement. He talks about Sodom and Gomorrah receiving punishment from God because of sexual immorality and pursuing unnatural desires. And, and try as a person might to explain that differently, the only fair and logical interpretation of that phrase is homosexual activity. It, it, it's the same phrase Paul uses in Romans chapter 1. Um, some, will, some will try to argue sometimes that Sodom and Gomorrah faced judgment solely because of their participation in rape and their, their lack of hospitality. But, but Jude, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes this letter, does not see it that way. That's not what Jude says. That's not why the punishment was given. So, so it seems that ungodly people were finding their way into the church and leading church body, leading people in the church into sexual immorality, all while claiming that the grace of God allows them to do such things. And all of a sudden, we see that Jude's words to the church then are quite applicable in the context in which we find ourselves today, isn't it? You know, we, we do well to remember that sin, and, and not just sexual sin, but all sin, as we're going to see in a moment, it's promised judgment from God. Now, forgiveness through God's grace to us is available. That's the hope of the gospel. That's why we are here this morning. But it doesn't permit sin. Any, any teaching, any lifestyle which proclaims something different from that is ungodly, as Jude references it this morning. So, so in a society where sexual immorality is, is tolerated, accepted, and promoted, and even praised at times, must be careful that that way of thinking does not find its way into God's church, find its way into our lives. And again, it includes sexual immorality, but it's not limited to sexual immorality. Because look, look with me, skip with me to verse 14, where Jude's talking about judgment again. Verse 14, it says, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism, to gain advantage. So, so in those uh, three verses, Jude references a Jewish writing called First Enoch. Now, First Enoch isn't part of our Bibles, but even though he quotes something which isn't part of the Bible, it doesn't mean that he is considering that book to be divinely inspired. You'll, you'll hear that argument made sometimes, but but that's not what Jude is doing. He's simply quoting something that, that would have been widely known to his audience. And Jude's not the only person that does that in Scripture. In, in John's Gospel, he does the same thing when he states that the high priest Caiaphas told the Jews that it would be good for one person to die for all the people. Now, John's not claiming that Caiaphas is a true prophet of God. He's, he's simply referencing a known statement that was made at that time. 
Uh, Paul does a similar thing in Acts 17 when he quotes a Greek poet. So, so what Jude is doing is he's, he's using what's a, a common statement, something that, that would have been well known, to show that ungodliness in addition to sexual morality, ungodliness in the form of grumblers, malcontents, boasters, greedy, that will face judgment from God. These ungodly ways of living have have no place within the church because God's judgment is coming upon them. And then additionally, the, the, you know, the promises made by, by the people who were proclaiming these things, who were living these things out, Jude goes on to show how it's not just that judgment is coming, it is, but also the promises that they make will prove to be empty. It's one of the ways that ungodliness can be identified, according to what Jude says. So let's, let's look back here at verse, uh, verse 8. And he says, Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, rejecting authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, Waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea crashing up from the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. <clears throat> so like we talked about a couple weeks ago in Second Peter re- regarding false teaching, the outcomes of, the, of, of ungodly teaching are, are clear. The, the fruit produced, or, or the lack of fruit, as Jude talks about, identifies it. So he says that those who teach ungodly ways reject authority. They, they blaspheme what they do not understand. They, they walk in the way of Cain, which would be hatred, jealousy, murder. They walk in the way of Balaam, which is love of money. They walk in the way of Korah, pride, insubordination. And he goes on, says, further, they are, they're hidden reefs, they're, they're rocks below the surface which shipwreck whatever gets too close to it. Um, they're shepherds who care only for themselves. They're clouds which don't bring the blessing of rain. They're trees which bear no fruit and then are dead themselves. They're wild waves of the sea that crash down upon anything in their way. They're, they're wandering stars which are no good for navigation because of their, uh, their, their inconsistency. Jude's kind of pulling out his inner poet here, right? He's utilizing all of these pictures, these word pictures, to help the church identify these ungodly teachers. And as I was just dwelling on all of those different pictures that that he uses, I was struck that everything which Jude describes in those verses is the opposite of how God describes his words to us. God's words teach us to respect authority 
and seek God's work within us to put to death those things like hatred and jealousy and murder and love of money and insubordination, all those things. God's word is the rock on which I can build my life, not a rock that destroys me when I get too close to it. God's word feeds me. It brings blessing. It bears fruit. It upholds me. It's consistent and firm. So, in other words, the ungodly teachers were, they were proclaiming things which were contrary to the godly words of Scripture, contrary to God's true words which he has given to us. Ungodly teaching will infiltrate the church in exact opposite proportion to the word of God being proclaimed. So the more God's word is proclaimed, the less ungodly teaching will, will take root within the church. The less that God's word is proclaimed, the more that ungodly teaching will take root within the church. And, and that has shown itself time and time again throughout the history of the church. We see it all over the place. We can see it today when churches and, and even entire denominations waver on the authority and the truthfulness of the word of God. And what holds true for the church holds true for our individual lives just the same. The, the more we interact individually with the word of God, the less ungodly teaching will take root within us. The less we interact with the word of God, the more that we'll find ungodly teaching taking root within us. Like in the context in which Jude wrote his letter, ungodly teaching is present in our society. It is seeking to make its way into our body like it was making its way into, our bo into that body. That's Satan's plan. Like then, uh, th now like then, ungodly teaching will be judged by God and we must identify it namely by being students of God's word to us. Same things that Jude was writing then are so needed for us today in the context in which we find ourselves. Now, if we go back to verse three, we're reminded that Jude wrote this letter in order to appeal to the believers to contend for the faith. That's the phrase that he uses in verse three. So he wasn't just seeking to identify false teaching, but he desired for the believers to respond to it in a certain way. And the details of that response are given to us then in verses 17 through 23. What he introduces in verse 3, he, he fleshes out at the end of his letter. So, so in his instructions on contending for the faith, Jude calls for three actions. So let's look at the first one. Follow with me at verse 17. It says, But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers following their ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit. So, in responding, first, Jude wants the believers to remember that the very situation in, in which they found themselves was foretold. He reminds them that the apostles spoke about such a time when ungodly teaching would be found among them. 
Peter warned about scoffers coming in the last day, as last days, as predicted by the prophets. Um, Paul warned the Ephesian elders as he was departing from them that fierce wolves would come in among them. And he even stated that from among their own selves, men would arise and speak twisted things. Paul warned Timothy, like we talked about today in Sunday school, that in latter times, some would depart from, uh, from the faith, depart from truth, and that there would be people excited to follow it, that their itching ears would want to hear it. So in other words, the church that Jude is writing to shouldn't be surprised at the situation at hand. It's serious, and it needs to be addressed, as we'll see. That's why Jude's writing his letter, but, but it's not something unexpected for the believers then. And it's helpful for us to remember that same thing today. The, the church has needed to be on guard for the past two millennia for these things that Jude is writing about. And when we recognize it today, it, it, it's, it, it's not as if things are worse than they've ever been. We, we don't have to take a fatalistic viewpoint about our own context. We do well to remember that we're in the same boat as our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history. There might be some uniqueness about our context, but, but the basics are the same. Just like they addressed the situation among themselves, just like the church has been doing that throughout its history, we can do that as well in the power of God. But how can we do that? What does that look like? Well, what Jude goes on to say is we can keep ourselves in the love of God. So look with me at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. So when Jude says to keep ourselves in the love of God, he's not talking about living in such a way so as to earn salvation. It, it, it's not about that. We've already read in his statement in verse 1 that the believers were called by God. He's already stated in verse 3 that, that they have a common salvation with Jude. They're already believers. Um, we'll see again in verse 24. It, it, it's God who, who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless to himself. God's love, he, he has loved us first. He has brought us into his love. We ought to respond by remaining in that love, not turning away from that love. And Jude encourages the church to do that by building themselves up in the most holy faith, by praying to the Holy Spirit, by praying in the Holy Spirit, to the Holy Spirit would count as well. It's God. So, so when we think about building ourselves up in the most holy faith, uh, we do that. We participate in that. We participate in our sanctification through our awareness of God's character and ways and our obedience to God's character and ways. That, that, that's the essence of sanctification, becoming more and more like God in how we think, how we speak, how we live, all of us. We've talked already about uh, how reading and knowing the truth of the, uh, of the Bible is vital in this. We can add to that application 
of what we read in the Bible, obedience to what we read in God's word. We, we keep ourselves in the love of God by being built up in the faith, and we are built up in the faith as we know God and as we follow God, as we obey him. And then along with that, Jude talks about praying in the Holy Spirit. That means praying freely and consistently in step with the Spirit. It means we are praying in agreement with the leading of the Holy Spirit. And, and we know and we understand the leading of the Spirit as we are immersed in God's Word. We, we just can't get away from it. <laughs> That's part of praying in the Holy Spirit. So, so all that to be said, we contend for the faith in the face of ungodly teaching and ungodly people as we keep ourselves in the love of God through holding fast to God's word. Holding fast to God's word looks like knowing it and applying it. And one of the ways that we do that, one of the ways that we apply the word of God and, and so contend for the faith is through our responses to others. Well, look with me at what Jude says in verse 22. He says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. So in the face of ungodliness creeping into the church, Jude highlights three groups of people and, and tells the believers how they ought to respond to each one. First, he says, those who doubt should be shown mercy. There were those within the church who were, who were wavering due to the seductions or the smooth talking of the ungodly. They were questioning the truth of God's words and God's ways. And in response, Jude calls for mercy. Have mercy on those who doubt. Rather than be offended or disgusted over their doubts, mercy ought to be shown. And mercy shown then in connection with, with truth being communicated, support being given. When, when, when you or I have someone come to us expressing some doubts, or, or when we sense that a person has doubt creeping in, maybe they don't even recognize it, but we're sensing that ourselves, what is our default response to them? Are we harsh, are we judgmental, or are we merciful? We contend for the faith by showing the fruit of the faith. You know, faith in Jesus, real, true, genuine faith in our merciful God for salvation will show itself through mercy overflowing from us toward others. If, if we cannot show mercy to those who doubt, we have reason to question whether we've truly experienced or understood God's mercy ourselves. I, it's the parable of Jesus that, that Jesus told of the unmerciful servant, what we read earlier this morning. The one who has shown great mercy from God ought to be showing mercy to others. <clears throat> that, is, that is a major way that we contend for the faith when I, when I hear that phrase, I always think intellectual, contend for the faith, right? Argue correct doc, doctrine. That's part of it, but it's also showing the fruit of true, genuine faith. That's also how we contend for it. 
So Jude says, first, for those who, <clears throat> for those who doubt, have mercy. Second, the, there are those who are being consumed by the fire. And Jude says they need to be snatched from the fire. Now, already in Jude's letter, <clears throat> other places in the New Testament, God's judgment upon ungodliness is often coupled with fire. That's, that's one of the, probably the most common description used. Jude speaks here of those ungodly people who were destined for judgment upon their sin. There were, there were those in the church who had rejected the lordship of Jesus, as we've read. They were the exact people that Jude warned about. And, and <clears throat> what Jude is saying is that rather than see those people as the enemy who need to be destroyed, he says, we need to snatch them out of the fire. Now, we know only God can do that, right? Only God can do that. We, we don't save people. God saves people. But we ought to do what we can to snatch them out of the fire through proclaiming the gospel, showing love, responding to evil with good. Our, our, our primary desire ought never to be to see anyone suffer judgment for their sin. Rather, first and foremost, we ought to desire them to be snatched from that fire and experience the forgiveness and redemption that we ourselves have found in Jesus. And that's what Jude is leading us to do here. Those that, that, that are in that fire, that that fire is coming upon them, we need to snatch them from it. And then third, those who are believers but who have succumbed to the ungodly teaching and ungodly ways set before them. So not just doubting, but, but succumb to that, I think is what we're led to believe here. We, they also need to be shown mercy, mercy with fear bathed in the truth. So we don't waver on ungodliness. We don't pervert the grace of God, as Jude talked about in verse 4. But we ought to show mercy as God would, all the while gently but firmly communicating the fear that we ought to have when we think about God's judgment upon sin. And, and, and it's easy, it's easier to swing the pendulum all the way to one side or the other in this, isn't it? It's, it's, it's easier to show nothing but mercy and never speak the difficult yet necessary truth about ungodliness and its final judgment by God. It's easier to do that. It's also easier to swing it all the way to the other side and hammer down on the wretchedness of sin and the judgment that's going to come, never showing mercy to the wayward believer who's been led astray. It's easier to go all the way to one side or the other. The situation in which the church found themselves in the time of Jude was a difficult one. The situation in which we find ourselves today as the church in America, is, is difficult as well. A crucial way that we contend for the faith is by rightly responding when ungodliness infiltrates our church, when it's, when it's seeking to make its way into our church and into our lives. Allowing ungodly teaching to go unchecked shows a lack of contending for the faith. But so does viewing humans as our enemies or, or responding without mercy show a lack of contending for the faith. Doing those things well in conjunction with one another is messy and it's difficult. And it's a, there's a reason that the extremes are easier. 
doing those things hand in hand is difficult and messy. It can lead to disagreements among us. But we have to be humbly on our knees before God, pleading with him to give us the strength and the wisdom and the courage needed to rightly contend for the faith. That's, that's Jude's encouragement to the church here. Rightly contend for the faith in this situation in which you find yourselves. Jude ends with a doxology that, that I think is both, both encouraging and worshipful in what it is. So uh, w- would you stand with me as I read these final two verses as Jude concludes his letter to the church. Verse 24, he says this, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. So God is, he's able to provide what is needed as we navigate these waters, the context in which we find ourselves. He can keep us from stumbling, both as we identify false, ungodly teaching and as we respond to it, as we contend for the faith. And his glory, his majesty, his dominion, his authority, it, that, that has been for all time that is present now, and it will be for all eternity. It will be forever. forever. No, nothing's going to change that. And so may we, may we rest in that. And may we desire that all people everywhere would come to an awareness of that and a submission to it. So let's come to God in prayer. Father, we're, we're here this morning and, uh, you know, we think about the, the context of the letter of Jude and, and here we are nearly 2,000 years later and there's, there's just so much similarity and I'm confident it's been that way throughout the history of the church. And so I thank you that your words, which were, which were alive and true and applicable then, are just the same today. No more, no less. And so I praise you for that, God. I pray that you would, you would open our eyes, that you, you, would, you, you would give us the understanding that we need, that when, under, that when ungodliness seeks to make its way in, that we would recognize it, that we would see it, and we would be ready to stand firm in the face of it, that we would contend for the faith, and that we would do so in a way that is honoring to you, that is glorifying to you, and, and that also shows mercy to others, that speaks truth to others. God, we know that that's a, that's a high calling, that's a difficult calling, but it's our calling. And you equip us for it, you, you, you provide what is needed for us to do that. And I'm thankful for that today. We worship you for that reason this morning. God, would you... Would you be guiding us more and more? We want to reflect your character more clearly today than we did yesterday. 
and yet more clearly tomorrow than we have today. Would you guide us into that, God? I thank you for who you are. I thank you that you are truth and that your words to us are consistently true as well. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.